Good morning. Great to be in church and to open up the scriptures. This morning, I only have nine slides, but we're going to read the text also while we're on this first one. And the reason we're going slowly through this is that 1 Corinthians is one book of the Bible that's been misunderstood, misused, abused, and so on in church history to really teach the opposite of what Paul is actually teaching. And let me set the stage for that. So as we're on 1 Corinthians 2.9, which is a citation of some ideas from passages in the Old Testament, we want to go back into the context. The last month, the last two times I preached, we were in Luke explaining the honor-shame worldview of the biblical writers. Shame was to be avoided at all costs. Honor was the greatest value. So this is what is causing the problem for modern people to understand the Bible because we don't think the same way they did. So we need to know that in order to see why Christ crucified was an offense to everyone. So as we're on this title slide, I'll read the context, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's our context. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to see things that have caused many to reject the truth. Its offense is great because of the shame of the cross, but Lord, may our hearts be melted by your spirit so that we are willing to know and hear what you've said and love the truth and embrace what you've spoken about salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context is that God's plan of salvation through his son, second person of the Trinity, crucified Jewish Messiah, offends everyone but those who believe. And we need to understand that in order to not create more confusion for people in our day. So let's go to verse 9. I'm only covering this one verse. What's true that I want to defend is this. Paul is not talking about various topics here. He's talking about one thing in particular. And that is that God's wisdom is Christ crucified. And that's why we'll emphasize this. I have to say, I was deceived because I thought that some Christians had access the secret information that others didn't, and the deep things of God, which will come up next week, were the things that those who are attuned 
to the world of the spirits or hearing things from God that others don't. And we'll go more into what's wrong with that. At this point, we want to see what is it that God has revealed and what is the content and what's the topic here. 1 Corinthians 2.9, citing from the ESV. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, there's no one verse cited that we can identify, but the ideas are there. And elsewhere, Paul cites various phrases from the Old Testament that make a point. So that really shouldn't offend us. A couple of verses that are often mentioned are Isaiah 64, 4 from the Septuagint, and then also Isaiah 65, 17. And we'll look at a few of those ideas. Let me cite something here as we're on this slide for, from Isaiah 64, 4 from the Greek translates the Old Testament, often cited in the New. Here's what it says. We have never heard, and our eyes have not seen, any God except you and your works, which you do for those who wait for mercy. That would be a different translation than we have in our English Bibles. But the idea is this. Had God not spoken authoritatively and clearly through his ordained spokespersons in the Old and New Testament, the canon of Scripture, had God not revealed what he is doing and has done and what his plan is, we would never have known it or figured it out or conjured it up or put it forward. This is what God has revealed. That doesn't mean it's secret in the sense that some mystic figured it out. It's objective truth. It's binding truth. And it's about God's plan of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, Isaiah 65, 17 says this, translated directly from the Greek of the Old Testament. I know that the canon contains the Hebrew, but the Greek translation was cited often in the New Testament. For there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and they will not remember the former things, and they will not arise in their hearts. So to go up upon the heart is really found in the text right here. So what goes up upon the heart, what we learn, what we know, is not something that anyone was actually looking for. As we saw earlier, the Jewish expectation was not a Messiah who would be hated, shamed, rejected, and hung on a tree, which is a curse. They didn't expect that. Certainly, the Gentiles weren't looking for a crucified Jewish Messiah. Everything about God's plan offends those who don't know him. So, the point is that what God has revealed is public truth, but it offends everyone other than those who believe. And it doesn't mean it's cryptic, but it means God has spoken in a way that is predicted in the Old Testament, 
but not expected by religious uh, consumers. So that's the key point, and we'll get to that as we go on. Now, I may get a little nerdy here. I don't intend to make anything more complicated, but if anyone could be spared the deception that I got into as a new Christian by understanding what's actually said and not what some super saints claim they read into it, it's worth teaching all of us what God said. So there's a relative pronoun in verse 7, 8, and then twice in verse 9, it'll come up again. Not an uncommon usage, Haas, which is Omicron Sigma, with rough breathing, for those who do study Greek. And what it's about is that which. What is it referred to? Christ crucified. Not several different things. So this relative pronoun, verses 7 and 8, refers to wisdom, which would be Sophia, and which things that are revealed that are in verse 9, and what is the content of that. We'll talk about that throughout this sermon. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Preached on that in October. Now here's the point. This is not distinguishing between different sorts of wisdom or revelation or religious ideas. It's talking about one thing. The one thing is this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not the deeper things, the secret things, the mystical things, the various things people claim to know. Not anything that would lead Christians to be divided in the parochial considerations earlier in 1 Corinthians, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, as if Christ were divided. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are cleansed by the blood, who are trusting him alone, who are willing to believe the truth that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, those are the ones who are willing to accept the wisdom that God has revealed. Christ crucified. I want to, I've written a statement out that I want to share with you. The relative pronoun in every case refers to what God has revealed and freely given us through his wisdom, Christ crucified, which is the essence of what Paul and the other true apostles and prophets preach. Continuing my statement, there are not various ideas, messages, secrets, and so forth, only what God has revealed. This includes what God has promised, which we'll be looking at. Why is that important? Because in the years of church history, these passages have been abused as much as any other in the Bible. People are told to take religious oaths. They're told that the secret things only certain Christians know. They're told, well, you have to give people 
something besides what they've already heard. It has to be different. It has to be different than what's revealed in the Bible. That's false. Christ crucified is the one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what's revealed. Now, let's break this down a little bit, and we'll have some cross-references as we go to the next slide. But as it is written, here's that relative pronoun, what no, ha- no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. There's that phrase from the Hebraic saying, has come up upon the heart. The truth of God's plan of salvation was not determined by some guru in India. It was not dreamed up by some mystic who went into the mountains all alone and sat there and meditated. It wasn't determined because someone used modern marketing ideas and decided, why don't we survey everybody in our city and find out if they were going to be religious and go to a meeting, what, what, what would they like? If you do that, the only people that will ever say, what I want to hear is the pure word of God taught, and I want to know about the blood atonement, Christ crucified, and God's promises. Who would say that? Somebody that already knew Christ. This isn't imagined. It isn't dreamed up. It isn't designed to satisfy anybody's desire because it offended everyone that originally heard it, including Saul of Tarsus. So what is revealed by God, we need to know, and it's not a secret. Turn with me to Isaiah 40, 28-31. I've limited the number of slides because I want us to open our Bibles and look at some of these cross-references, and see why we need to trust God and what he said. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. I'll read it from the New American Standard Bible. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. That means you can't figure it out by trying to figure it out. Continuing, he gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. God is the one who gives hope, help, strength, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and eternal promises to people who didn't just figure out a new religion. The truth is revealed, it's objective, it's not secret, but it's not what anyone was looking for. Similar things are said elsewhere. 
we're not going to turn to this, but if you want to jot down Daniel 2, 19 through 23, there God revealed through Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, things that concern future history. Daniel said, these things God reveals. The magicians, the sorcerers, the magi, the people that were experts at this didn't figure it out. It was revealed. So therefore, we need to keep going back to what has been defined. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You say that? In Christendom, people say, yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. Because we don't understand the honor-shame society they lived in, the value system. To be shamed is something that had to be avoided. That's why I took two Sundays and went back over um, Luke 15. Why would the most honorable, perfect, holy being, the very creator of the universe, God the Son, the very creator, we believe in the Trinity, the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, why would he willingly bear shame? Because by being dishonored, no one would want him. No one wanted a crucified Jewish Messiah. But God chose to use the things that are not to confound the things that are. If we have believed the truth of the gospel, trusted Christ, then we have been given something that we didn't dream of. We weren't looking for it. We weren't wanting it. But God provided his promises and his salvation. The honor, if we're, if we're not willing to wait for the honor, if we want it in this world, if we want it from the culture, if we want it from religiosity, if we want it from the churches that really don't know Christ, we will get our honor somewhere else. But if we believe the promises of God, the honor awaits those who have believed. So we need to realize the rulers of this age are deceived. Let's go to the second part. 1 Corinthians 2, 9b, what God has prepared for those who love him. What we already know is what's revealed. There are even greater things that await, but we won't believe that unless we believe that God's promises are true. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. We'll cover that in a bit. Same word. Why would you believe that? If you want your glory and honor now, why believe that Jesus is really going to prepare a messianic banquet for those who love him? Why would you believe that these sinners, like the woman who wept on his feet, the wicked people that found forgiveness in the Gospels, the dishonorable people like Samaritans in Acts, 
an angry enemy of God, Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, who breathed out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, or someone like me who hated Christians and Christianity and was ready to go my own way, why would anyone believe that a cursed Messiah, the sinless one, the virgin-born sinless one, <coughs> excuse me, forgot the fisherman's friend, the virgin-born sinless one hung on a cross. Why would you believe that? Only by grace. Let's look at that word prepared. The word prepared is really not that common of a word, so I, I ran a search of it, and there's some cross-references for us to turn to, both in the Old and New Testament. If you want to jot this one down, I'll read it to you. Exodus 23.20, prepared. It says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Same word in the Greek. Prepared. Put a place in the promises that God has for his people. Turn to this one, Hebrews eleven 16. I'll explain that word while you're looking for it. At Tomadzo, I prepared, as prepared, to prepare, and so on, is very important. I'll tell you why it's so important. Christianity, as perverted in church history, wants to prepare a place here for Jesus. We're going to take control. We're going to rule over the nations. We're going to go to war and force people to be Christians whether they want to or not. We're going to be the ones who establish this. And then when we did all the work, we prepared a place for Jesus so he could come and uh, take over what we've already done. It's called post-millennialism. Some versions of amillennialism. We're going to do it. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. When he returns, it'll be to bring judgment, to bring into the eternal order of affairs. How offensive is it for fallen sinners in the name of Christ saying, no, Jesus, we'll prepare a place for you. We don't think we can trust your promises. Perversion of the Great Commission. Look at Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they, speaking of the ones mentioned, who believed God, believed his prophets, believed his promises, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared, the same word, actually in the same tense, a city for them, same word mentioned here, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? Do you believe that 
Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be? That he, according to John 1, 1 through 18, is the very creator, the eternal Logos, the word who came into our world, was truly born of a virgin, who truly lived a sinless life, whose words are the very words of God? you believe that? In the Bible, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, you can see that throughout Luke Acts, how do we know that someone speaks by the Spirit? They speak forth the mighty deeds of God in Christ. We see that in Luke Acts. Turn, by the way, to John 14, 2 and 4. Here's that same word again. John 14, 2, 2 and 3. We'll, we'll cover those two. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. By the way, there's a sufficiency of Scripture. We know what we need to know, but we itch to hear things that we can't know anyhow. I would have told you if it weren't so. He told us what we need through his disciples, his apostles. Where I go to prepare, there's the word, a place for you. John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is there a place? Now, I know this is a complex event, but God will keep all of his promises. So what says in this verse, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, having taught the Bible for a long time, I know what question comes up. I've heard it even in the last few years. Yes, God's prepared for those who love him, but maybe I don't love him enough. How do I prove to God that I love him? Maybe if I take an oath of poverty and join some place and be real humble, then I can prove I love him. Or some will say, if I go and look around and see what God is doing and join that, that's proof that I love him. That's what the emergent church said. So what's God doing? Whatever they imagine. So we have people who think the proof that you love God is that you fight climate change, as if man was in charge of the climate. Others think, well, I'll do this, and that's proof I love God. No, the issue isn't that. Were it not for a work of grace, none of us would love God. The original preaching of the cross offended everyone. The people that were closest to what happened at the resurrection, took money to lie about the idea and said, well, the disciples stole the body. They knew what God was doing in the sense of the objective thing that happened, but they didn't care. They'd rather have money. So we've got problems. Let's see if we can unpack that a little bit. I hope we can see that the only reason we love God at all 
is that God first loved us. And this we need to realize from the Bible. What God has revealed is not cryptic and offends human pride. Secondly, those who know God's wisdom and who love him are recipients of grace, not seers with special status. So first, as we go to the next slide, I have an overview of a lot of material that we've covered in 1 Corinthians. What offends people and confuses people is the idea that, well, this can't all be about one thing, can it? Doesn't it have words like power, weak, wise, mystery, secrets? And so they see words. I did it one time. Think, well, this is this, this is that, and we have all these categories, but the reality is it's all about the one message, Christ crucified. So what is the word of the cross? 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about the message preached? We preach Christ. What about the power of God? The power of God comes to us as the message of Christ who came into our world and, as I said, proved who he was by his mighty deeds, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The power of God is at work in the life of anyone who's willing to turn to him on and come to him on his terms. I get emails from the power people. Come to the miracle meeting. It's coming to a town near you. There are people literally who have moved to Israel who claim to be ones who have more power, more miracles, and can do things that Jesus never did. And they're already there waiting for Antichrist so they can defeat him. I got an email from a pastor who uh, has run into that. And we've written an article about that, and he had it translated in a number of languages. Can you imagine the audacity of somebody saying, just come to my meeting, I'm going to do greater miracles than Jesus ever did. One guy who's still out there doing that, at ABC one time, whenever that was, the 90s, brought a camera crew because he said, well, we're going to raise the dead. And so come and see the dead raised. Well, it didn't actually happen, but uh, it's just a confusion. Power of God. When I was a young Christian, it seemed like the bigger uh, sound system, the more power you had. There was a guy at a church that we went to see, and he had a mic. He'd swung around like this, and he said, Power! That's it. That's the power of God. The speakers went out, the power would go away. No, power isn't somebody's meeting. It's Christ crucified. So the power of God is Christ crucified. The wisdom of God, Christ crucified. The foolishness of God, ironically used, 
God has used the foolishness of the message preached to save those who will believe. That's also about Christ crucified. The weakness of God, ironically, Christ crucified. The testimony of God, Christ crucified. And then Jesus Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. God's wisdom in a mystery. Mystery here is used in a different way. Here's what it means in this context. Had we had, were there nothing in the world but our own selves, no evidence, no revelation that's given objectively in history, no mighty deeds of God, no exodus, no prophets, no Moses, no, no apostles, and we dreamed up a religion, a mystery religion, we wouldn't come up with something that offended everybody. God's grace in Christ, because the word mysterion is used, doesn't mean it's a mystery religion. These are terms which were used by Paul to describe the means God has ordained to save sinners. This is my statement. In all cases, the meaning is clear enough, but it's not what anyone wanted to hear. God does things his way. So if you did a marketing survey of people who have no religion, how many of them would come up with this? Zero. Zero. So we need to listen to what God said. Let's now do some cross-references. Review and preview. Here's review. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, scandalon in the Greek, and to the Gentiles, foolishness, Maria, Maria, where we get our word moron now, it meant absurdity, folly, foolishness, nonsense. I know, let's start a religion, and it's going to scandalize this group and be stupid to this group. That'll really bring in a lot of followers. No one. It would bring in no one. But it's God's means of saving sinners, Jews and Greeks. So a scandal and folly, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There are two terms Paul is using for Christ crucified. Power of God and wisdom of God. It's not something else. It's one message. And it's clear. What happens when we change the meaning? Here's a simple version of hermeneutics. The Holy Spirit-inspired author of Scripture determines the meaning, not the reader. That is Hermeneutics 101. The author determines the meaning. The first class I had in hermeneutics at seminary, taught by Dr. Stein, Bob Stein, who's, I have his, several of his commentaries now. He had a, story, a thing that he would ask us, and I, I should have just sat in the back and not said anything because I knew the answer, and I think I ruined it. But here was his way of teaching hermeneutics, and he's got a book out on that now. 
He said, let's say there's a passage of Scripture that seems hard to understand. So we get a group of Christians who are pious, and they go pray about what it means. And then we have linguists who understand language, sentence construction, and so on, from the University of Minnesota, and they're going to study it, and then they're going to come together and tell us what does it mean. Which group do you think would come up with the right answer? Well, in the class, normally they say, well, the Christian's praying, but I knew it was the wrong answer. So I said, I'll go with the U every time. I was already, but it wasn't really fair because I'd already been in a group that did it the other way. As a matter of fact, if you really want to get crazy ideas, stay up all night, fast and pray all night long, 24 hours, all day, all night, in the morning, somebody gets a revelation from God. You know what you get? Foolishness to God. Absurdities. It doesn't work that way. The meaning has already been given when God spoke. And then uh, that was, that's the correct answer. In human communication, we, could, we couldn't even function. Why did the Tower of Babel not be, become finished? God confused their language. Meaning is determined by the author. So the truth is clear. It's revealed. Not only is it spoken in the words of the gospel, but it happened in history. Objective truth in real places, real time, real space. In Sunday school, we often show pictures of the places where Paul walked on slides. This isn't mythology. It's cold, sober truth. So why not preach that? Because it will never create a huge following. The narrow gate isn't for those who sacrifice the most. It's those who believe what God has said. Let's look at love in Romans 5, 8 and 1 John 4, 19. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is demonstrated through his actions in history. The keeping of his promises. His work of grace through the gospel. And so, many people in our culture have heard this. We know that Christ died, but they deny the significance of it. I've told my story about this when I was to join a church 12 years old in a class. I asked the pastor teaching the class, well, I'm studying science and I'm having trouble with this. Are you, you're saying these things are they're miracles. He said, no, you don't have to believe that. God has never done miracles. That was just accommodating the people who believed in those sort of things. But actually, he just expects us to be good people and be nice. 
It was a little bit believable. In rural Iowa, most of the neighbors were nice. I suppose it's harder to believe if you live somewhere where hardly anybody's nice. Sadly, we live in a world where nice kind of went out the window a long time ago. But nice won't save anybody anyhow. Then, the later time, I asked another pastor at church camp, well, I'm having doubts about the Bible and I'm studying science. No, the, the things in the Bible didn't happen. They're stories to help us become better people. I thought, well, I think I can work on that on my own. The, the discussion groups we had at church camp, LSD groups. Some of you were around in the 60s. LSD was a drug. It meant, let's start digging. But what are we digging for if none of these things really happen? Then, when I was converted, I asked another pastor, the same denomination, why I was told these things hadn't happened. He said, well, the good Lord understands and so on and so forth. So we disconnect the Bible from what God did in history that we don't really have anything to believe in. Christ died for us. What does that imply? First of all, Christ is who we claim to be. God the Son, the Creator, the Great I Am. Look at in the Gospel of John. How many times did he say, I am? I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Unless you believe that I am, Jesus said, you will all die in your sins. Well, we have Abraham for our father. Well, guess what? Abraham believed in Christ. So the uniqueness of Christ, the person of Christ, the things he did and said that demonstrated who he is. We were sinners. What does that mean? I mean, we, every form of revelation, historical, just general revelation, that the earth exists and it's habitable, that some asteroid hasn't knocked out life on planet earth. Literally, there was a flood. All the ancient people knew there was one. We can see that. The heavens declare the glory of God. Sin against that revelation. God has spoken. Sin against that revelation. God sent his son. Sin against that revelation. God raised him from the dead. No, we don't want to believe that. We'd rather take money. He ascended into heaven, promised to come again. No, we don't believe that either. Carefully listen to this. If we create our own gods, our own Christ, our own religion, our own version of how we're going to come to God, we will be deceived 100% of the time. But if we listen to what God has said, we believe the truth. It offends people to say they're sinners. But we've offended a holy God. Now, what about loving God? He prepared a place for those who love him. How do you know that you love him? Let's turn to this. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 4. We'll start at verse 10. We'll read this.
1 John 4, 10. I have verse 19 on here. We'll read up to verse 18. Let's look at verse 10. 1 John 4, 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's that word, propitiation? Illustrian is mercy seat. Propitiatory sacrifice. The blood was poured out on the Day of Atonement on the most valuable part of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. But it had to be done over and over again, as it says in Hebrews. But this he did once for all. Averts God's wrath against sin. And for those who believe, ultimately, sin will be removed. Verse 11. So he sent his son to be the propitiation. Verse 11, 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This really is going to be a key thing that will see in Corinthians as we go on. The assumption that the church of those who are redeemed and trust Christ can be divided up into parochial interests, sections, sects, I should say, groups, the good Christians, the bad Christians, the enlightened Christians, the unenlightened Christians, and so on and so forth, is a a force, a propensity that's always there. And it causes people to do a lot of really bad things. It caused me to join a group where everyone sold their houses, gave all their things to the leader, and then our money's gone and we have nowhere to live. But we proved we love God because we're not in Babylon. Let's be beware. Why are the one and others important? The thing that makes us one is that Jesus Christ has cleansed our sins The world hates us. It will always hate us. If we know Christ, one another is all we have in this world, the promises of God. In any version of fellowship that divides one Christian from another, grounded on something other than Christ crucified and our need for serving one another and the gifts that God gives each one, is not ever going to be helpful. So, no one has seen God at any time. We love one another. God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, God, God the Spirit, poured out as Jesus Christ promised, God would send the Spirit. And so Luke Acts helps us understand these other things. How do we know we have the Spirit? Not by self-sacrifice, not by meditation, not by secrets, not by knowing things that other Christians don't know, but by the fact that we confess Christ. 
the greatest mighty deed God ever did was send his son for the forgiveness of sins, to die for us. The mighty deeds of God are not to be found at the miracle meeting held by Todd Bentley. I mentioned him because I got his email the other day. There, Dear ones, there's no claim so grandiose that a false teacher won't make it. They'll claim anything. If you're going to make a false claim, make a really big false claim. That's not from God. Now, verse 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Verse 16. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. Abides may no stay put. Trust God. Some siren song will come along. The really high-level Christians are this sort of person. Here's the better version. Here's the other version. No, abide in Christ. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. (laughs) Start over. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. This is important. God saves those who believe in Jesus Christ from the wrath to come. People cite that in their liturgy. But I found a whole group of people that said there won't be judgment because everything's evolving into God, paradise on earth through all religions, without judgment. It's false. It's a lie. If there's no wrath to come, then what are we saved from? Let's go on. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We can't boast. We can't claim we know something other people don't know. It's revealed. It's public truth. It's revealed for us to know. It's not just temporal. It's eternal. It involves promises. God cannot lie. We escape the wrath to come when we trust in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. Don't be deceived. Somebody will come and say, If you don't have more power than Jesus and his apostles, then you're not going to help anybody. If you don't give everything away and take an oath, then you don't really love God. If you don't do everything I tell you to do, then you don't really love God. If you don't take oaths, then you don't love God. If you don't give enough away, then you don't love God. If you don't join our perfectionist group, then you don't love God. Many people will say, you don't love God because you don't do enough. 
Not that we loved him, but he loved us. That's how we do love. Perfect love casts out fear. What sort of fear? The fear that this is all there is, that I'll end up in purgatory and some of my descendants will have to buy me out of there, or that it's all meaningless. I heard someone say one time, well, here's my belief. He who dies the most toys wins. Also, there is a middle-aged person saying, I got more toys than you, you lose. But what good are toys if there's really a judgment coming? One last slide, and this is a preview. I want to tell you where we're going and why I'm going so slow, slow, going slowly through this. The next verse talks about the depths of God. Bathos, deep, the deep things of God. Well, here's the deep things of God. Christ crucified. I was deceived. I thought the deep things of God were things that spiritual persons who knew how to hear the Spirit knew that ordinary Christians don't know. I spent quite a few years of my life getting that dumb idea out of my mind. That's a, re- that's a preview for next week. Let's look at what we'll eventually get to. 1 Corinthians three, nineteen through 21a. For the wisdom of this world is folly. There's our word, morea, moronic, with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. I don't think the most toys is going to do it. I don't think the most sacrifice is going to do it. I don't think Eastern meditation is going to do it. I don't believe our own virtues will do it. Our own strength, the, the young men that seem to have endless energy, I used to be one of those, they get old and they get tired. But what does it is God's gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the wisdom of God. If we think that we're going to boast, we're already deceived. How do you boast in the Lord rather than men? By realizing that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, God the Son, the one and only Savior, who died for sins once for all. Religious works say do. The gospel says done. Today, turn from self, pride, religion, mysteries, mysticism, knowing something, not knowing something. You need to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Turn to him, believe in him, trust in him, and God brings eternal life in a place that he's prepared for all those who know him. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that 
in the perilous times in which we live, the, the traumas, the tumults, the obvious fallenness of the world all around us. Many people are suffering. May we be focused on the gospel and on what you've done for us and hope in you. And Lord, may we pray for one another, care for one another, and not allow anything to distract us from how badly we need one another. We know the world hates us, but we know that you have prepared a place for those who love you. And we love you only because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.